This morning, we're going to be in the, in the Psalms, in the text. And I want to start by reading part of the text in Psalm 107. I love this psalm. I just finished uh, last, yesterday, as a matter of fact, I read through the Bible every year, probably my 40th time, 50, 40 to 50, somewhere in that range, because some years I've read through it more than once. But so I just finished Psalms yesterday. And this psalm, Psalm 107, is a psalm that's become one of my favorite. As one of my favorites because really the literary quality, the emotions that you find in this psalm, but it's a masterpiece just in literature as well as in the spiritual nature of the psalm and what it describes uh, God doing. But Psalm 107, and we're going to read uh, several verses, but first we're just going to begin with the first three verses, and I want to talk about those a little bit. Psalm 107 And verse 1, we'll read the first three verses, where it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that He has redeemed them from the power of the foe and has gathered them from from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and the south. Now, even that phrase from the east, west, north, and south, that's not kind of unusual because in the ancient world, a god was typically a god of a local region. Not the god of the whole world, but of course, our god is the god of the heavens and the earth. Our god created everything that is. Now, the false gods of the ancient world and the modern world are usually localized gods, Baal and Molech and Astra, and localized gods for localized people. But one thing the Bible makes clear, and even this psalm makes clear, is that if, if you want to know God, whether you live in the east, west, north, and south, whether you speak English or Urdu or Farsi or whatever, you have to come to the one true God. And we know through the New Testament, we do that through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, a word that he uses to describe what God does to bring us into the family, and we're going to see the kinds of people God brings into the family in a moment, but a word he uses is redeemed. Did you notice that? It says it twice in verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe. Now, redemption, that's an economic term. That's a term that is used in commerce. It's used very little other than in the church and where there's one business that uses the term redemption as a standard term it's the pawn shop (laughs) okay you go to the pawn shop you go to the pawn shop when you need money and you've got something that has value that you take to the pawn shop and let's say you you need a whole bunch of money to to like fill up the gas tank or something like that you know something that takes a lot of money and so you take something of value to the pawn shop and the pawnbroker gives you money and you could take your golf clubs or your hunting rifle or your firstborn child or whatever it might be, you know, something of value, and you, pa- and you put it in hawk. That's what they call it. You put it in hawk with the pawnbroker. When something is in hawk, it is useless for the purpose for which it was created. So if you take your hunting rifle to the pawn shop and he gives you money, then no one is supposed to use the hunting rifle. It's in hawk. It's useless for its intended purpose. Now, let's say you got the gas tank of fuel and you were able to make some money because you could go do business and you made enough money you could go purchase back your hunting rifle. That is called redemption. You redeem it. You placed it in hawk and now you're purchasing it back so that your hunting rifle can once again be useful to you. And now you can play with the firstborn child also, you know, if you redeem them back. 
What the image is here is of a human being, you and I, through our sin, we have been placed in hawk, spiritually useless. Now, a person might say, well, a person who doesn't know God isn't totally useless. They can work, and they can feed their family, and they can do things. Yes, they can, but I'll tell you one thing they cannot do. They cannot intentionally live life to the glory of God. No person who doesn't know Jesus can intentionally live and do things and think in such a way that it brings glory and honor to God. Now, the Bible tells us God can even use lost people to do His will. We know that, and you see it all through the Scriptures. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is an example, many other examples. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't bring glory and honor to God intentionally. But when a person's been redeemed, purchased from the hawk of sin, we can now live in such a way that it is our joy. It is our desire to live life to, for the purpose and the glory and the honor of the Lord. And what the psalmist says is, that is the purpose, that is the opportunity for every person everywhere in the world. Whether they come from the east, the west, the north, and the south, no matter what language they speak. I was talking to a missionary medical doctor by the name of Anna Perry. Anna is like an independent missionary. She's a Baptist, but what she does is she works in an emergency room until she makes enough money she can move to northern India and work for free among the poorest of the poor who have no medical care. And then when she runs out of money, she comes back to the United States, works a while, makes some money, goes back to northern India. She was telling me about this church that she visited in India, and she said, when you go into the church, there's a list of names. There was eight names on the list. And there was room for more below those eight. And she thought, I wonder if those are the pastors of the church. And so she asked them, are these your pastors or who are these? They said, no, these are the martyrs from our church. These are those who, and by the way, India is a very dangerous place in a lot of parts of India. In the northeast part of India, just in the last few weeks, hundreds of churches have been destroyed. Lots of Christians have been killed. It's the Kuki people, the Kukanese. I've actually known some Kukanese believers who came to the United States. It's that area of India, and there's other areas too. Very, very dangerous. And this church was in one of those areas. And she said, you go into the church, and there's the list of names... And she said, how's that for an evangelism strategy? <laughs> you know, you go into the church and uh, you come here and you might be killed. If you are, we'll put your name on the list, you know, and honor you. Um, but the point being, whether you're in the east, the west, the north, and the south, when you come to know Jesus, you sing the same song. You are redeemed, you are rescued by God, you are saved by Him, and no matter who you are, no matter if you're rich or poor, young or old, no matter where you live in the world, we all ultimately sing the same song. We all ultimately praise God in a similar way. And this psalm points that out. It's part of the literary beauty of this psalm that I love. So what is that psalm? In verse 8, it says this, this is, and this is repeated throughout the psalm. Verse 8, Let them give thanks to the Lord for His faithful love and His wondrous works for all humanity. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His faithful love and His wonderful works for all humanity. And then in verse 15, Let them give thanks to the Lord for His faithful love and His wondrous works for all humanity. 
in verse 21. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. And then down in verse 31. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. What the psalmist is doing is he paints the picture of four people, four categories of people, each of whom was rescued by God, each of whom was redeemed by God, and once redeemed, they all came to sing the same song. The first group of people he describes begins in verse, uh, verse 4. So notice in verse 4, and we'll read verse 4 through 9. Some, some of these redeemed, some wandered in the desolate wilderness, finding no way to a city where they could live. They were hungry and thirsty. Their spirits failed within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He rescued them from their distress. Now that statement, by the way, is repeated several times in this psalm also. Every category of people that he describes ultimately says, ultimately it says of them, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He rescued them from their distress. He led them by the right path to go to a city where they could live. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. For he has satisfied the thirsty and filled the hungry with good things. It's a picture of people who are lost. They're wandering. They're, they're in the wilderness and they're looking for a city. They're looking for a place of safety and security. Because in the ancient world, uh, you were not safe if you're out beyond the walls of the city. There's wild beasts out there. There's marauders and bandits outside the walls of the city. So, and often it was hard to find water and food and things to give you sustenance. And so what people did was they tried to find the city and congregate in the city and build walls of security in the city. The picture is of people physically and spiritually wandering, looking for safety and security, looking for life and health and wholeness. It's really a picture that describes so many people today who just wander around looking for purpose and meaning and something that gives life and sustains life. Not just sustains life physically, but sustains life in terms of meaning and purpose and and helps provide peace and joy and security in life. And what happens is, when you're out there wandering in the wilderness, sometimes you grasp at things you think will bring safety and peace, but they don't. Uh, one thing you've no doubt heard of are mirages, a mirage. Those are in the Sahara Desert, somewhere out in the wilderness, and they see something that isn't there. And they, they, they go for it, they grasp for it. A mirage happens because the air at the surface of the ground is warmer than the air above. And so when light comes through air that changes its temperature, it bends the light. And actually, you can see things at the ground level that are reflected from the sky, and you can see things that aren't there. And classically, you see an oasis that isn't there, maybe a pool of water, and, and you go for it because you need water. 
Most people go through life looking, searching, and grasping that which they hope will give them life but doesn't. Several years ago, one of our sailors, Joey Mora was his name, he was on one of our naval ships in the Persian Gulf and he fell off the ship. And he fell off, and nobody saw him at first. He fell off the ship. He had no life preserver. But he had been trained to use his trousers and manufacture a life preserver out of his trousers, which he did. And for 72 hours, Joey Mora floated in the Persian Gulf until a Pakistani fishing vessel found him. And when they scooped him up and brought him out, they said, what do you want? What do you need? And the first word he said was, water, <laughs> water. Hey, he'd been floating in the water for three days, but he needed water. He's ne nearly dead of thirst because as you know and as he knew, you can't drink salt water. Salt water will kill you, but most people in their desperation would drink the salt water and they would die. But after three days and you're seeing things and thinking things and wondering, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I just got to try it and it would kill you. That's really the picture of what most people do, and all of us have done to some extent. We, we go through life wandering like going through a wilderness without the security of the people of God, being in the sanctuary, being in the city, being with God's people to remind us and teach us and help us when we're weak. By the way, that's the thing. Sometimes you're strong, even as a believer, or even as an unbeliever, and sometimes you're weak. And how do you get through life without destroying yourself when you're weak? One way you do that is you have a pastor and you have a church and you have people to whom you're accountable in your family and your church and they help you through those times. That's part of what we do as a church. It's part of what we do as families. If you don't have a family, if you don't have a community and then you don't have a church then you wind up doing things and trying things that will kill you. You take chemical vacations through drugs and alcohol. This is really a picture of people wandering through the world and until they find redemption in God, the one true God, through faith in Jesus, they don't have a happy ending in their life. Everybody wants a happy ending, but there is no happy ending until you're redeemed and rescued. Now, there's a second picture that he describes in this passage. It's also a, a powerful picture. Those who are in prison. In verse 10, others sat in darkness and gloom, prisoners in cruel chains, because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the counsel of the Most High. He broke their spirits with hard labor. They stumbled, and there was no one to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and gloom and broke their chains apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His faithful love and His wondrous works for all humanity. For He has broken down the bronze gates and cut through the iron bars. This is a picture of those who are enslaved. They're prisoners. Enslaved to destructive habits, bad relationships. The text says they're enslaved because they had rebelled against the Word of God. 
It's often been said, you don't break God's commandments, God's commandments break you. And that's true. We rebel against God through idolatry and seeking false gods. It leads us to bad decisions in our relationships, in life, that just bring us a lot of hardship. And we've experienced that to some extent we all have. This is a picture of those who are enslaved. They're imprisoned. They're shackled by sin. And they don't find freedom and the happy ending that they want until they find it in God, the one true God. And He redeems them. He rescues them. But He rescues them in the same way He did those who were wandering in the wilderness. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And He rescues them from their distress. Do you know how unusual it is for people to cry out to God in their trouble and truly repent of their sin? I see people, and you do too, and I've done it. I'm sorry for my sin because of the trouble it's brought me. But to repent of my sin, that's a different story. That's harder. I tell you, the big need we have in our nation is repentance. The big need that we have in our churches is repentance. The big need I have in my life is repentance. Whatever the president does and the governor, the thing that's going to bring me most trouble in my life is if I get out of sorts with my wife or the people that matter most to me. It's, it's my own. When I stand before God one day, I'm not going to answer for what the president or the governor or anybody else did or my wife or any, any I'm going to answer for myself. What did I, how did I, what did I do? What decisions did I make? How did I live my life? Did I put myself in shackles because of my own sinfulness? Was I able to repent of that and allow God to redeem me and restore me? Our annual meeting is about a month away for the Northwest Baptist Convention, and my message at that annual meeting, the text, is going to be Manasseh. And I've never thought about preaching on Manasseh, but reading through 2 Chronicles, I read about King Manasseh. And if you know about King Manasseh, you know he was the most wicked, vile, evil ruler that Judah ever had. And he ruled 55 years. He was the longest-serving king Judah ever had, longer than David, longer than Solomon. And Manasseh, the text says, turned to wicked gods, idols, and that led him to do detestable things, chief of which was he burned his own sons in the fire. He killed his own kids. I'm not going to preach you the whole sermon right now. But what's remarkable about Manasseh is that he repented. Now, God put him in a horrible position. He was taken with hooks and chains to Babylon. He was imprisoned. And while imprisoned in Babylon by the Assyrians, he repented. And God actually restored him to his kingship back in Jerusalem. It's probably the greatest act of repentance ever recorded from a guy who is the most loathsome, evil character you could ever imagine. And yet he repented. And when I read that for the umpteenth time, it just hit me, that is what we need. I can get ticked off about all kinds of things going on, and I do. (laughs) But what we really need is to repent. And if the church would get right with God, maybe we could help others get right with God. You're going to see a man who got right with God. (laughs) I think it's a man who's going to be baptized in a little bit. That is awesome. That's a demonstration of repentance. But we have to continue repenting, 
even after we're saved, don't we? Because we can make a mess of our life even when we know God. By the way, Manasseh did. Manasseh came back to the God of his fathers and, and the, the God that he knew was Lord. And one reason Manasseh repented, do you know who his dad was? Anybody? This is participation time. Hezekiah, that's exactly right. Hezekiah, who was one of the greatest kings Judah ever had, his son was one of the worst. But, but Manasseh must have learned something from his dad. And when he grew old and experienced a lot of suffering, he came back to the God of his father. It's an encouragement to those of us who are trying to raise kids who maybe aren't doing the right thing right now. <laughs> but maybe they will, and we pray they will. Well, there's another picture. There's two other pictures I want to quickly cover. One is in verse, starts in verse 17. The fools. Fools suffered affliction because of their rebellious ways and their iniquities. They loathed all food and came near the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them from their distress. He sent his word and healed them. He rescued them from their traps. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. Let them offer thanksgiving sacrifices and announce his works with shouts of joy. Here he's describing people who are sick. They're sick because of their rebellious ways, their iniquities. To say that we have iniquities means there's something twisted within us. That's what the word means, something warped, perverted, twisted within us. Why do I do that which I don't want to do, Paul once asked, because of my iniquities. I'm twisted. I'm warped in my thinking and in my heart. And so sometimes I do and say and think things I shouldn't think. And what the text says is sometimes that will make you sick. He's talking about people made sick by their sin. Now, we know that there are all kinds of sickness that aren't because of our own personal sin. But sometimes we get sick because of our own sin. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's a college minister. And he's, he's older than I am. He's probably been in ministry almost 50 years and, but he's still active in, in call, with college students. And I asked him the question, what is the one big issue you see today among, college, among, young, among young adults? And he immediately said, fear and anxiety. Fear. He said, I have never in my life seen such fear and anxiety as I am now in young, strong adult men and women. Well, that resonated with me because I know a lot of especially young women who battle with anxiety and depression and fear. And you think about the world that these young people have lived through, COVID, the horrific... I, I, well, I, sh I actually looked at a few of the pictures from the Hamas massacre. I didn't look at very many of them, but I looked at a few because there are still people out there denying some of this stuff really happened. It's unbelievable. It's horrific. And most likely, your kids have seen those pictures. It's one reason I did. Because if they're on Twitter and TikTok and whatever these social media things are, they're, gonna come, they're definitely going to have an opportunity to look at them. So your kids and grandkids have lived through COVID. They've lived through cancel culture. They could lose their job if they use the wrong pronoun. It's insane. 
what our kids are experiencing. Our governor, I mentioned him a moment ago, in May signed into law that if one of our kids wants an abortion or transgender surgery, they can go to a provider and say, don't tell my parents, they don't like this, and the state of Washington will hide the kid from their parent and pay for the procedure, meaning those who are taxpayers will pay for the procedure. And by the way, a Texas kid could come to Washington and they do the same for the Texas kid or the Oregon kid, wherever they come from. That's the world in which we live. That's the world in which your kids live. Business is different today. Schools are different today. Why wouldn't they have fear and anxiety? It's unbelievable. I just finished a book last night. I was telling Pastor Richard by George Barney. It's his latest book, Building Spiritual Champions. I recommend it to you. And he said, he said a lot in that book. It's about building kids who become champions and protecting your kids from the evil one. And, but one little fact he shared I didn't quite know, media. Okay, every kid is exposed to media. Social media, a variety, movies, television, all of that. What I didn't know was he said that every study they've done says that media has more influence on the worldview, on how your kid views the world, than you do as a parent, than their siblings do, than their friends do, even than the schools do, all combined. I couldn't believe that. So over 50% of the influence on your kid's life that shapes their worldview, over 50% comes from media sources. Less than 50% is parents and siblings and friends and everything else, put, and church, by the way, and everything else put together. Now, that's not true for every kid. The kids who are being raised here, who we saw some of them up front this morning, they're going to have some different inputs in their life. However, as a parent, as a grandparent, you've got to guard the media consumption of your kids, both in terms of quantity and quality, because it will produce in them fear and anxiety and depression and sinfulness and a very warped view of what the world is. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come to give you life and to give you life more abundantly. You know, we can still have abundant life right now with all the insanity and the craziness and the wickedness that we see in our world. It's actually po possible for you and me to live with joy and peace because of Jesus only. There's no other way. You want that for your kids. You don't want them to be in the picture of this text in which they get sick because of their wicked and rebellious ways, loathing all food, coming near the gates of death. By the way, the age group that saw the biggest increase in suicides in the last couple of years, senior adults. Senior adults in terms of percentage increase. You know, suicide has gone through the roof. But there is a... There is a uh, movement in our culture not only to say that suicide's all right but that maybe it's even the thing you ought to do so that your kids and the world doesn't have to pay for your illnesses and take care of you and all of that garbage that is wickedness we value life as someone said from the womb to the tomb the senior adult who's 104. Did you see, by the way, the lady the other day, the oldest lady ever to skydive at 104? 
And then she died about two weeks later. I don't know if you saw that. She just passed away. <laughs> but I mean, you get a figure. She at some, in some way was living life right up to the end. That's the way we want to do it. Spiritually, at least. Well, there's one more group I want to point out to you. And that's in verse 23. Others went to sea in ships, conducting trade on the vast water. They saw the Lord's works, His wondrous works in the deep. He spoke and raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea. Rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths, their courage melting away in anguish. They reeled and staggered like a drunkard, and all their skill was useless. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced when the waves grew quiet. Then he guided them to the harbor they longed for. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wonderful works for all humanity. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. It's a picture of people living in a storm. Sailors on a stormy sea. Anybody here a sailor? Out on the ocean? Okay, a couple guys over here, one back there. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm. I've only been out on the ocean a little bit and never was a sailor. And I can't imagine, though. I've seen pictures of waves 100 feet tall. And, just, and, and, and what the text says is all of their skill fails them. Sailors have to be highly trained to run the ship. But you get in a situation where, where the storm is so great, you're completely out of control. Paula and I went. If you, I'd commend this to you. In Astoria, Oregon, there is a maritime museum and we've driven by it 50 to 100 times and finally stopped Labor Day weekend. And it was really, really interesting. And a lot of it focused on the Coast Guard and their rescuing people off the Oregon and the Washington coast. And many of them have given their lives over the years. And the storms, and it was, it was, it was amazing to look at those fairly small boats that go out in the midst of the storm to rescue people who can't help themselves. What the text says is that sometimes in life we're in the midst of a storm and we cannot still the storm. We cannot quiet the seas. But God can. And what happened was in this text and Jesus in the New Testament, they turned to the Lord in their distress. He heard them in their distress and he rescued them and he stilled the storm just like Jesus did in the New Testament. The picture is, in life, we sometimes are in a storm. And it's only, and we can't do anything about it. How many times are things beyond our control? And God has to step in. And he does. I love this psalm. I love the literary nature of this psalm. But I love how hope-filled this psalm is. Whether you're wandering in the wilderness, or you're sin-sick, you're a prisoner, you're in a storm in your life, whatever your situation, you cry out to the Lord in your distress and he rescues you. He hears your cry. May well be someone here this morning. That's where you are. You say, I'm right in the midst of it right now and there's nothing I can do. But God can. And he can bring you peace even in the midst of the storm. He can bring you rescue and salvation no matter what your circumstance is. 
So just like this man who's going to be baptized, cry out to the Lord in your distress. Surrender and humble yourself to him and follow him as a believer, as one who has faith in a God who rescues. I love, and Paula and my, we love coming here, partly because it's the only church we ever go that you have a choir, a great choir. Yes, true. Actually, we have a Korean church in Tacoma that has a choir. Very few choirs anymore, and the only pipe organ that I can recall is yours. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and other great instrumentalists as well. You've got more than one, I think, really fine pianist. And we just love worshiping with you and singing these great songs that so many don't sing. One we did not sing this morning, but is one of my, maybe my all-time favorite. It is Well With My Soul. And you might remember the background of that song. Horatio Spafford wrote it. Horatio Spafford was a business guy. He wasn't a preacher or a songwriter, to my knowledge. He's a business guy. And he sent his wife and their three daughters on a ship to England. And then he was going to follow them. This is in like around 1880, somewhere around there. And he was going to follow them, but their ship got in a storm and their ship was sunk. And he got a telegram from his wife from England with two words, safe, alone. And he knew by that that his daughters were dead. He sailed over to meet his wife, and he asked the captain, tell me when we're at the spot where my daughters drowned. And so the captain did. And if you... You know the story and you know the song. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hath taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Why? Because he knew his girls were in Jesus' hands. They were in the arms of God. I mean, if you didn't know that, there would be no hope and no way of moving forward, really, if you didn't know God in that way. And so he wrote that song. I don't know if this psalm came out of an experience quite like that, but it came out of the experience of someone who understood suffering and difficulty and when life gets beyond your control, which is every day, and finding rescue in God and God alone. We're going to give you an opportunity to find that rescue this morning. If there's one or two or three here this morning who need Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Bible says that Jesus not only stilled the storm, but Jesus actually went to the cross and died in our place to cleanse us of our sin. Jesus not only forgives us of our sin, he washes our sin away through his shed blood. The Bible says that Jesus was buried, that he was raised on the third day ascended to heaven, seen by hundreds after his resurrection. Our faith is a historical faith. It's based on a real person, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, who died in our place, was raised from the dead, was testified to by many after his resurrection that founded the church that continues to this day. Jesus didn't just die for Peter and Paul and James and John. He died for you. He was raised not just for Peter and John, but he was raised for you and for me. 
so that we too can be in the company of the redeemed from the east, the west, the north, and the south who've experienced rescue and redemption by God. I want to pray for us. Brother Richard's going to be here. We're going to sing a song giving you opportunity to respond. Come pray with your pastor. Whatever decision the Lord has laid upon your heart, you make that decision. And even as you do, we're going to be readying ourselves to witness a man who recently made that decision and is following Jesus very shortly in the waters of baptism. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us. Father, it does our heart good to be gathered together today with your people. Father, I thank you for this church, for what this church has meant in your kingdom's work for so many years. And now for Brother Richard, my good friend, to come and shepherd this wonderful church is such a joy, Father. Just pray that the days to come might be as good and even better than the days from which we've come. And that you would bless Pastor Richard and Vicki and their family and this church family, Father. Lord, bless this man who's testifying to all of us today that Jesus Christ is Lord through his baptism. And Father, anyone here who doesn't yet know Jesus, who hasn't yet taken a public stand for Christ, may they do so today. May they come today and pray with their pastor. May they very soon follow, uh, Father, follow Jesus in baptism, identifying to the whole world that they know and love and trust Christ. Father, may it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.